I have a question for the kids uh, in the room this morning. Kids, um, have you ever been disobedient to your parents? I hear the snickers. I hear what's going on. Parents, if you want to jog their memory a bit, you can, uh, you can do that as well. I know that's true for, for our children. Um, my two-year-old son, Micah, he loves this tree in our house. This is actually the, the tree. I pulled it this morning. I didn't tell my wife this morning. That was a bad idea. But um, this, is our, this is the very tree in our house that our, our two-year-old son, Micah, absolutely loves. And he loves it because of the dirt in it, which is the very reason why we don't want him touching it, right? 99% of the things in our house uh, you can touch. If you have kids, you know that rule. It's long been broken or hidden at this point. So you can touch most things in our house, but this is one of the exceptions. He is not allowed to touch it, which of course is one of the reasons probably he wants to touch it so badly. And like I said, the reason we don't want him to touch it is because of the dirt inside, that every time he plays with it, he has this trail of dirt all along our house. And so finally we said, we got we to gotta end this. And so we said to Micah, Micah, no touch. And we pointed at it and we, you know, shook our heads and we kind of ruffled our, our faces, no touch. And we had to say it a few times, but not too long. He knew what we were saying. He got our expectations. He just didn't care, right? He just... <laughs> That's nice. That's good, right? And the thing is, is that not only was he being disobedient, but he was sneaky about it too. You know what I mean? Like, it's not just like, I don't care. I'm going to stare at you. It's like, well, I'm going to do it when you're not looking. So he'll pull this move. He'll kind of, he'll do one of these. He'll go like this, you know, just, and then when he thinks we're not looking, he'll just kind of go like this, you know, and then when we walk into the room, he'll go, (laughs) right? He'll go, and then he'll, and then he'll look at us and then he'll tell us, no. Like, he's telling us, no, we're like, Micah, that's it. And, he'll, you know, we'll go back and he'll go. So he, this is sort of his uh, struggle right now. This is what we're working on is the tree. No touch. Now, in the spirit of equality, my daughter is no saint either. Um, just the other day, my wife heard Micah crying upstairs. And she, when she went up there, she found him uh, holding his fingers and crying. And she discovered that Mia had bit him that there was some sort of uh, disagreement and she went off and bit him. And of course, wanting to nip that in the bud, she got right down in Mia's face and said, no biting, we do not bite. And then what what a lot of time for Mia spent, she spent some time on the steps. The steps are our timeout. So she has to sit here and sort of wait it out. This is her timeout, no steps. Now, my uh, daughter is just like my wife uh, as a kid. If you get in her face and you just, you get mad, there's, that's pretty much all you have to do. She just breaks down at this point. She cries and no, and she's so sad. And she gets put on the steps to kind of wait it out, to think it out. Now, we have two rules in our timeout. We have two rules for the steps. The first rule is, is that when they're sitting on the steps, we do not engage with her. She could be rip-roaring mad and yelling. She could be crying with tears running down her face. But no matter what, as long as she's not hurting herself, no matter what, we do not engage with her during the timeout. We want the steps to sort of communicate a type of separation that happens, that this is what happens when you disobey. There There is a separation that happens. And so for a time, we do not engage. But there's a second rule. And that rule is that we always come back. 
we always take the first step. We always initiate the reconciliation that comes. And we hug, and there's always this beautiful moment. Molly and I have commented uh, many times that after, after a time on the stairs, there's just this connection with Mia afterwards, that she's lighter, she's happier. She just, I think just in her spirit, she feels better, that she experiences the separation of the steps. But she knows that mom and dad will always come back. We will always initiate the reconciliation. We will always take that first step. If you have your Bibles, flip over to Hebrews chapter 5. If you don't uh, have a Bible, we have uh, pew Bibles in front of you that uh, absolutely you can use if you'd like. Um, If you are using a hymn Bible, you can flip over to page 1257. Uh, You'll find it there. Here in Hebrews, we're going to talk about obedience this morning. The author in our passage, uh, 511 through 612, this section that uh, we'll be looking at has to do with obedience. And so what I want to do is just help you fill out that first fill-in. In your bulletins this morning, there's a fill-in for you that you can find that will help walk us through the passage. The first fill-in is this, obedience has a learning curve. Obedience has a learning curve. The passage says this. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make clear for you because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, still being an infant, is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death, and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. We'll stop right there and take a look. Now this passage starts by saying, we have much to say about this, but it's hard to make clear because you are slow to hear. So what is this this? What is this thing that the Uh, that the author is talking about. Well, if you just look a couple verses up, you'll find the answer starting in verse 7. Because in verse 7, it gives us the this. What is this this that they're talking about? It says, during the days of Jesus' life, starting in verse 7, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, became the source of eternal salvation for all who obeyed him. So we see that even though Jesus was the Son of God, Son though he was, he had to learn obedience. He had to learn how to follow, how to walk after the way. Being in his, in his, uh, in his state of man, he had to learn obedience. And so the passage a few verses later says, he was the best at it, and we are slow to learn it. We have much to say about this, but you are slow to learn it. Now in the Greek, uh, translators often will help us understand the passage by kind of glossing over the literal Greek to give us sort of a a, a phrase or something to help us understand. So they use the words uh, slow to learn. But in the Greek, literally it reads dull to hear. 
we are dull to hear. And what they're doing is they're using this Jewish concept. They're referencing back to this Jewish concept that they have of hearing. So to a Jew, when you heard, there was actually two levels of hearing. You, when you heard, you understood, you, you literally audibly could hear, the, hear whatever someone was saying. And maybe you even understand it at that level. You heard it, you understand it. But then there was this other level. And this other hearing is when not only did you hear it, not only did you understand it, but you obeyed. You did it. You acted upon what you heard in a way so that you would hear and you would hear. We actually still use this a lot of times. Kids, I don't know if you've ever heard your parents ask you to do something and then they'll say, did you hear me? Right? Have you ever heard that happen before? Like, they're like, no, I've never heard that before. And parents are like, I say that all the time. Like, did you hear me? Right? Maybe you'll be asked to, uh, to clean your room or something. And about 15, 20 minutes go by and you haven't done it. And they'll walk back into the room. And I said, I told you to clean your room. Didn't you hear me? Now, what they mean is not just, did you audibly hear me? Or did you understand? Sure, you might have understood. But what I really mean is, did you do it? Did you hear me? You heard me, but did you hear me? Jesus being a Jewish rabbi, he actually uses this phrase himself. The disciples come to him at one point and ask, um, why do you talk in parables? Like whenever the crowds come, all of a sudden you start talking in parables. Why is that? And Jesus answers him in, in Matthew 13, 13. Take a look here. So Jesus asks that and he says this, this is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see Though hearing, they do not hear. See, these crowds come to me, and I tell them, and they don't do it. So I have to use these parables. I have to use these, these real-life situations to help ground this teaching I'm giving them in real-life circumstance in order for them to really understand it, in order for them to understand how this applies to life, to force them to make a choice. I want them to hear, and I want them to hear, but they don't because they're dull to hear. And so this is what the Hebrew author calls us. They say, we have a lot to say about this, but you are dull to hear. You hear, but you don't hear. And so this is what they do. The father says, it's kind of, and then they liken us to infants. They say, you hear, but you don't hear. You're dull to hear. You're like infants that run to the tree and play in the dirt. And the father is just saying to you, why don't you grow up? Why don't you leave these elementary teachings behind and actually start growing up and actually start living into this faith that you've been given? Don't run to the tree anymore. Grow up. Become mature. And so we have to ask, how do we become mature? What does the passage tell us about this? And it gives us two examples of how we can move past this elementary teaching, this, this infancy that we're stuck in because we're so dull to hear. So here's how you can move past to maturity. In verse 13, it says this, Unlike infants, a mature person is acquainted with the teachings about righteousness. Acquainted with the teachings. Kids, this month you've been studying the importance. Someone just said it, one of the kids said it here. They've been studying the importance of God's word. All this month you've been answering the question, discovering what God says helps you blank. And you've been 
filling in those blanks every single week, remembering what God's word, it helps us do this, it helps us do that. In fact, you have a scripture memory verse that you've been working on all month, so let's see how you're doing. It's Psalm 119, 105. Can you say it with me, kids? It says, your word is like a lamp that shows me the way. It is like a light that guides me. Your way is like a lamp that shows me the way. It is like a light that guides me. Your way is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. See, the the mature, the righteous, they know the way to go. They have the light to give them the direction on the way to go. And so that as they travel, they can walk in righteousness. They have the right way to go because they have the light to guide them. Number two, a more, um, so a mature person knows the teachings about righteousness. But number two, a mature person, by constant youth, use, have trained themselves to distinguish good and evil. When Molly and I were dating, uh, she used to take me dancing. And being the good boyfriend that I was, I just put on a good smile and said, sure, honey, that sounds like a lot of fun, right? Now, looking at me, I think it's safe to assume I'm a terrible dancer. Like, I'm just awkward when it comes to dancing. In fact, Molly would used to tease me. She'd used to uh, tease me because she'd say, I didn't know my, sh- my hips from my shoulders. She'd say, Brian, move your hips. And I'd go. <laughs> and she'd be like, stop, whatever that was, stop. Like, that was, I, I never want to see that again. She'd say, no, no, Brian, move your hips. And I'd go. And she'd be like, okay, just stop. We'll do something else, right? I didn't know how to dance. I don't know how to dance. I've never trained for it. I've never put in the time, the energy it takes to become natural at something. Good dancers spend hours and years practicing and training so that, developing that muscle memory, so that it just becomes natural to them, right? Obedience requires muscle memory. Obedience requires muscle memory. It requires, it's, you don't just wake up one day and say, I'm going to be obedient now and just be able to do it. It requires constant training in order for it to become natural because we are wired away from God. We are wired uh, in the sinful way that wants to do our things the only way. So we need training. We need these spiritual disciplines. That's what all the spiritual disciplines are about. Helping, training us for this to become natural, developing the muscle memory in our hearts and our spirits in order for obedience to become natural in our lives. So the scriptures say, how do, we, how do we move on? How do we grow up? How do we become obedient to God? We have to know the way. We have to know the light. And we have to, through constant training, we have to be learning about it because obedience requires muscle memory. It has a learning curve. It doesn't come natural. But it is necessary for us to move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and to be taken forward to maturity because disobedience has consequences. That's your next fill-in. Disobedience has consequences. We'll pick it up. Hebrews 6, verse 4. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. Because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. 
Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful for those whom it is farmed receives a blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless, and it is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Now, right off the bat, I think we need to address something here, because the way it is written, if you read it, the way it is written, it sure seems to sound like that if you have become a Christian, if you have tasted the heavenly gift, if you've been enlightened, if you've shared in the Holy Spirit, if you've tasted the goodness of God's word, and then fall away, it is impossible, this is what the scripture says, it is impossible to be brought back to repentance because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again. That's serious. That's what this passage, at face value, if we're reading the NIV in the English here, it is saying it is impossible once you've become a Christian, if you fall away, to get back. Now, I need to get nerdy with you for a second. Now, kids, stay with me. I need to get nerdy for a second because I don't think this is what the passage is saying. And I think if we look at the Greek, I think this is a good example of where our English actually fails us. So I need to walk through this quickly with you. And again, allow me just for a few minutes to do that because I think we'll get some fruit from this once we see it. So uh, uh, again, look at your Bibles. The key word here is the word crucify. Everyone find the word crucify. And in fact, I would suggest if, uh, using your pew Bible because that's going to be the one that I'm really going to be kind of walking through so we could stay consistent. So use your pew Bible if, if you can. Uh, I want us to see this. Look at the word crucify. Point to it if you can. That's going to be our key word in understanding and translating this passage the right way. Now, this word crucify or crucifying as it's written is in the Greek a present adverbial participle. I know, I know, okay, I know. It's, it's nerdy, but stay with me for a sec. It's a present adverbial participle. What does that mean? First off, it's in a present form. Now in Greek, tenses work a little different, differently than in English. So when something's in the present in the Greek, not only does it mean that it's happening right now in the present, but it also carries a continuous aspect to it. So not only is it happening right now, but it also continues to happen over and over and over again. So oftentimes we really need to add that continuous aspect into the translation. So not only are they crucifying Christ, they continuously, they are continuously crucifying Christ over and over again. So that's, that's the first key. Now about this participle, this adverbial participle. A participle is a verb that functions like an adjective. That's what a participle is. So it's in a verb. It's sort of like when you say the walking man. Right? Walking is a verb, but it's actually describing the man. It's serving, it's functioning like an adjective. Now in Greek, when you run into an adverbial participle, it requires us to use logic. It requires us to look at the passage, see the context, and add a word or two to help us connect this main verb with this adjective. Crucifying, again, is, using, is being used as an adjective. So how, the question we need to ask is, how is crucifying connected to not being able to be brought back? You can't be brought back. That's the main verb. So how does that work? So I want to take a look, just to help us wrap our minds around it, take a look at the screen here as we kind of walk through how to translate this passage well. So again, just to give you some context, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, who've done all these things, and if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. 
to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again. So when you run into the word crucifying, you run into this present uh, adverbial participle, you have to ask the question, how is crucifying connected to brought back? And what it requires you to do is to insert a word right there in the blank in order to give us the relationship between the two words. Okay, does that make sense? Like, again, it's not written in the Greek. It requires us when we translate it from one language to another to insert that word. What word are we going to put in that blank to help us know what it means to, uh, for brought back to be connected to crucifying? And there's many options. There's many good grammatical options you can choose in order c- to connect the two. One of the ways you can do is you can use causal language, which means that the crucifying and the brought back cause one another. And when you do that, you'd insert the word because. So take a look. We'll do that now. Because. It is impossible for those who once been enlightened, and if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss, they are crucifying God. This caused this. You can't be brought back because you will be continuing to crucify. That's how it's written in your language. That's how it's written in, the, in your translation. Particularly look at that Pew, Pew Bible. They chose the causal logic. They've said, the, the translators looked at it and said, we're going to use the word causal. Now again, this is not grammatically incorrect. Because, because again, it's all contextual. You have to make a decision as a translator. What word am I going to put in there? And so the translators read it and they said, we're going to use causal logic. We're going to use the word because. And this is grammatically correct, but I don't believe it's theologically correct. Because there are other options. The other option, uh, amongst others, is what we call temporal logic. Temporal logic has to do with timing when something happens. So instead of causal language, this causes this, we're going to actually, the way that crucifying works is we're going to tell you while, when it happens. And so you would use the word while. Let's take a look, while. So again, up at the top is causal logic. That's what our translators of the NIV decided we were going to do. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened if they fall away to be brought back to repentance because, to their loss, They are crucifying God all over again. If you use because, it sure sounds like you can lose your salvation. I I don't know how you, I've read commentaries about how you can work around this, what's impossible for man is possible for God and all this stuff, but I feel like you're really reaching if you're choosing causal, if you're choosing the causal logic in order to translate this, in order to say anything other than uh, you got one shot at this. You got one shot. But, if you use temporal language, which again is, is grammatically correct as well, it says this, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance while to their loss they are continually crucifying Christ all over again. Now, as the Wizard of Oz says, that's the horse of a different color. If we choose temporal logic, it's not, you can't come back because you'll be crucifying Christ all over again. It's, if you continue to do this while you're doing this, you can't, you can't, come, you can't come to repentance while you continually are sinning, while you're continuously in disbelief, while you're continuously acting out of your own self-interest and not in the interest of Christ. You can't come back to repentance. My son cannot come to back to repentance while digging in the dirt. He has to stop, and he has to come. So while it's going on, it is impossible. But when you choose to stop, when you choose to repent, when you choose to come, All things are possible. Now, the passage doesn't say anything about that. Friends, I am choosing God, I am believing God for the while, not the because. 
I am believing God for the while, not the because. In your insert this morning, I left this passage in there. You can see it in your, in your insert, and I left a blank there. And you can believe what you want to believe. Again, both ways are grammatically correct. But I'm believing God for the while and not the because. I'm believing that while we are in our sin, while we're crucifying, while we continue to put him to shame, it is impossible. But I believe God takes the first step. And I believe that when we begin to align ourselves with God, grace and forgiveness is possible. God always says seven times seven. I believe that the prodigal son always gets to return home when he's ready to take that walk. So I'm choosing God for the while and not the because. Okay, nerdiness over, I promise. Now the passage, this section that I just read, ends with linking us to land. It kind of makes a, 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 a comparison to us and the land and asks the question, what is your life producing? It says that if the land drinks in rain, which is a symbol of God's provision and presence, and produces a crop, it is blessed. But if the, it produces thorns and thistles, it is in danger of a curse. And in the same way, if you have experienced the reign of God, if you've experienced the, the blessing, if you've experienced the taste of the Holy Spirit and the, and the experience of his love, what is your life producing? Are you producing fruit? Or are you, is your life and your hidden actions thorny? The question is, are you in danger? Because, uh, last fill-in, obedience has a promise. Disobedience has consequences. Like my daughter on the stairs, it separates us from our father in profound ways. But he doesn't leave us there because obedience has a promise. Verse 9, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that we have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. So what is this promise? Well, actually in chapter 4 of Hebrews, verse 1, it actually gives us that. It says this, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. The promise of entering his rest, his satisfaction, his fulfillment. The Hebrews called it shalom, which we uh, interpret as peace, but really has a much deeper uh, meaning. It isn't just simply the absence of conflict, but of wholeness, of completeness, of alignment, a life at rest with God. The promise of rest. It has been mentioned before that St. Augustine put it this way, our hearts are restless until they find their rest with you. Obedience provides a rest, an assurance, a wholeness, an alignment, a satisfaction with God. The best way to live. Jesus said, I'd come to give you life and life to the full life at rest. 
And obedience is the way to this rest. Obedience, aligning ourselves, saying it's not about me and saying I'm going to turn away from what I want and my desires that lead to destruction and and align myself with you, God. That brings me rest. Obedience brings rest. Last week, Pastor Milo mentioned that a lot of his uh, sermon illustrations uh, have to do with giving blood. So I'm just going to continue with the theme of my own. See, I, I like him, uh, am terrified of needles. I, I do not like them. It took six nurses when I was in kindergarten to hold me down to give me my booster shots. I just do not like them. And I know it's all in my head because every time I do it, it just, it's not that bad. But I just have this, this mental block when it comes to. And when I lived in Boston, um, our church used to host blood drives so every once in a while, I'd pull in to the office and there'd be the big sandwich board saying, give blood today. And it was always like, oh no, it's not blood, give blood day at the church. And thankfully, my office was uh, uh, in another building across the street. So most of the give blood days were me hiding out in my office because I didn't want to be the one, walk, the one staff walking around who didn't have the I, give blood, I gave blood sticker today, right? I wouldn't want, it was like my uh, reverse uh, scarlet letter that I, I wasn't the one that gave blood. So most of those days were spent hiding in my office, uh, not wanting to give blood. And I remember one uh, uh, particular uh, blood day where I was, I was hiding. It was about 10 o'clock in the morning. And all of a sudden, I felt this, this overwhelming sense of God's spirit say to me, you need to give blood today. And I said, whew, I've been... That breakfast burrito did not go down well. I, I know that wasn't me. That wasn't you, God. That wasn't you. That was just uh, something else. And so I just sort of tried to ignore it. And, uh, you know, I kept going. And there was a few things I did have to do over across the street. So I, like, went up the back entrance, you know, because I didn't want to walk through the lobby where it was going on. So I kind of went through the back and, hey. And, you know, I'd always cross my arms so I could, if there was a s- sticker party, I'd be like, hey, how's it going? Yeah, okay. You know, I just kept, kept hiding. About 2 o'clock in the afternoon, Again, this overwhelming sense. Brian, you need to give blood today. And I fought that thing, and I said, I'm not, no, I'm just not going to do it. 3 o'clock came. 3.30 came. I knew they were leaving at 4. And it got to the point where I knew if I didn't say yes to this, if I wasn't, and I had no idea why, but just that's what I heard. And I knew if I didn't say yes to this, that I would not have rest. I would not have rest. So begrudgingly, I sauntered over to across the street and up the steps and walked in and, you know, to a very smiley hat. Oh, hey, good. I'm like, hey, how's it going? Okay. So, you know, I, they go through the screening process and I'm praying like, God, could there have been like, I wasn't in a foreign country. Could, is there something that could disqualify me? Like, I, you know, Lord, I'm praying for your provision here. And nope, that's, that's, he wanted me to go all the way. So I, okay, so. You know, they, they, you know, they sit, if you've ever given blood, they sit you down, they lay you down, sort of, they give you cookies, that's nice. So they gave me a cookie and laid me down, and, uh, you know, they, they try to talk you off the ledge. They could tell, like, I'm starting to sweat, I'm starting, to, and I think they're trained to, like, notice those dives, so they're like, it's going to be okay, everything's going to be fine. I'm like, okay, okay. So, you know, they, they sort of strap you in, and, and, and the whole nine yards, and I'm just like, okay, I, I can do this. Jesus, take the wheel. Jesus, take the wheel. Right? And so, um, again, it, it's, it's all psychosomatic. It's not, so I'm there, and, you know, they do it, and I have to watch for some reason. I, just, I have to watch. So they do it, 
and it's not that bad, it's fine, and so they lay down. But usually what happens with giving blood is not instant. It, depending on, you know, what's you, your, your blood pressure and things like that, it could take 10, 15 minutes to get what they need. So they said, just lay back, and, uh, you know, we'll be back. Just, you're fine now, and uh, we'll just wait it out. So there I'm laying on the, the give blood table, and, uh, you know, just sort of, just sort of talking to God, saying, God, what was this about? Like, I, I'm here, I, I said yes, what's this about? And then something happened. And again, it wasn't supernatural, it wasn't lights or smoke or anything like that. I just, you know when the Lord speaks to you in your spirit and you hear it? You hear it and you hear it? And I just, I had that sense, just the spirit came down on me and I just, literally the blood was flowing from my body. And I heard the Lord say to me, I gave all my blood for you. Thank you for giving just a little of yours. And that was it. The Lord just wanted to meet me there. He just wanted to say hi. He just wanted in that moment to experience a little bit of that rest of God. And because I said yes, after many times in my life where I've said no, just this little time of saying yes, I experienced a taste of the rest of God because you said yes. Because obedience has a promise. Obedience says you can find rest when you align yourself with God. The question is, will we hear and hear? Will we grow up? Will we know his word and train to obey it? Will we produce fruit? Because repentance cannot come while you continue to crucify him. Because sin starts at the tree. From the very beginning, sin starts with the tree. Adam and Eve proved to humanity that we would always choose our way over God's. And sin leaves a dirt, a trail of dirt that winds us up on these steps. Separated, distant, far from God. We sit on the steps, look at our tree, and find no rest. But God always comes back. God always initiates. He always takes the first step. Paul says in Romans that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sitting on the steps, alone and separated, God said, I will take the first step. I will come, I will go, I will be there. I don't know where you're at today. I don't, I don't know where your dirt is. What's your dirt? I've got plenty. And I know that as I work on my dirt, and as it always, always winds me back up on the steps, I say, thank you, God, for taking the first step. Thank you for initiating it. Thank you. For while I was still a sinner, while I was still stuck on these steps, you died for me. And so wherever you're at this morning, if you've been in sin, if you've been in the dirt, if you've been at the tree playing in the dirt, and it's wound you up on the steps, because it always will, one way or another, it'll wind you up on these steps. Jesus wants to say to you this morning, you can come off 
relationship can be restored. I'll take this first step. I will never leave you here if you willing. But I can't do it while you are still continue in your obedience. And so I will walk with you and work with you and help you. Not because of your own strength. Not because you just grit and bear it and try harder next time. No, it's giving up and saying, Christ, I give you my whole life. I'm tired of trying to follow the rules and I'm tired of, of, of doing it in my own strength. I need you to come in from the inside out and change me. If you're there here this morning, that's what Jesus wants to say to you. Whatever your dirt is, he'll take the first step if you're willing. He'll come and he'll initiate. While you are still a sinner, he died for you. I want to invite the uh, communion ushers and the band up as we as we've been, because the table, what's so appropriate about it is that the table is our declaration that Jesus took the first step. The table is our absolute guarantee from Jesus that while we were still sinners, while we were still stuck in our sin and our disobedience, Christ died for us. So people of God who are all stuck on the steps, today we get to celebrate that Jesus took the first step, that Jesus initiated. Kids who are in the service, this is a great time. We do this intentionally for you, parents. Uh, we, this is a time where you can begin to explain what it is that we do here uh, at communion. You get to choose how you'd like your children to participate uh, in this, but we strongly encourage you. We'd love to hear a buzz around this room as parents explaining to children what is happening here, what's going on, why this is so important to who we are as the people of God. So please take advantage of this time to explain to your children what's going on and why it's so important. This table is open here. Um, if you have tasted the Holy Spirit, tasted his word, been enlightened, if you have made a profession of faith in Jesus, this table is welcome for you. It is also a dry table, so it's welcome for all uh, as well. But this, again, is our declaration to the world, declaration to ourselves, declaration to God, that we say yes, that we accept the invitation, we accept your initiation to get us off those steps. So let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, we don't deserve any of it. What we deserve is to be left on those steps forever. But you took the first step. And so, Lord, may these simple elements be profound ones for us as a people of God that say we are a freed people, not because of our own obedience, because of our own strength and our own power and our own will, but because of the grace and love and power Jesus, of you. So we take them humbly, we take them celebratory, we take them reverently, knowing that they're central to who we are as a people, a people of the steps who've been freed. So we thank you and we praise you. In your name I pray, amen. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave thanks for it. He gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, all of you, for this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
the body of Christ broken for you. And when the supper was over, he had the cup and he gave it to his disciples and he said, drink from you all of this for this is my blood of the new covenant for the forgiveness of sin. Drink this in remembrance of me.
blood of Christ shed for you for the forgiveness of sin. Let's pray. Father, we come thankful. Lord, whatever our dirt is, wherever um, trail we've left behind, we thank you that the, the bread and the cup are our reminders again and again that you will rescue us, that you will initiate, that you will take the first step. And so, Father, we just come in thanksgiving and gratitude. And now as we just finish by singing and, and declaring what you have done, God, may, you, may we feel your promise. May we feel and experience that taste of God, that rest of God from you. So we thank you and we praise you. In your name I pray.